as Professor Arendt and I were planning our discussions of the Catechism, he said that we could uh, sum up the doctrine of the Trinity after we had talked about the third article. Uh, I take it from the way you phrased that, now that I think about it, that there might be some other options. Yes, there are. I think one of the interesting features of Luther's catechism is that, at least in the small catechism, there is no direct explicit reference to the Trinity. I don't think he even uses the word Trinity at all. For that reason, over the years, it has left different commentators and curriculum developers with a dilemma about where do you put the Trinity? Because if the catechism and catechesis is for uh, orienting people to the Christian faith, for uh, orienting them to the church in a sense, well, the doctrine of the Trinity is pretty basic. That is to say, it defines what it means to be Christian. And at the same time, the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the more difficult doctrines, I suppose, to teach. Especially to small children. Especially to the small children. So over the years, some people would put a discussion of the Trinity in connection with the first commandment. You will have no other gods. Who is mm. this God? Well, the triune God. Um, in other instances, people might put a discussion of the Trinity right in front of the first article of the Creed. So you talk about uh, the three in one, one in three, and then from there you move into a discussion of the first, second, and third article of the Creed. Mm -hmm. uh, Luther doesn't go with either of those options, though. He puts it after the third article of the Creed. And I think this is for a couple of reasons. First of all, when we normally think of the doctrine of the Trinity, we probably think of it in terms of maybe some preliminary matter we have to know that we better get down before we can move on to some more interesting mm -hmm. things. I mean, the Trinity does seem to be, uh, I think for many, uh, not only a mystery, but um, unfathomable, you might say. Pretty abstract. Pretty, pretty far abstract. From uh, Dorothy Sayers one time suggested that, that to the average person in the pew, uh, when they think of the Trinity, it goes something like this. The Father is incomprehensible, the Son is incomprehensible, <laughs> the whole thing is incomprehensible. Uh, Timothy Law, uh, another Lutheran uh, theologian, suggested that the Trinity is the guilt-producing doctrine because we can't quite seem to muster the enthusiasm for it that we have for other teachings uh, of the Christian faith. And generally, over the last century, there's been a great deal of work on the Trinity recognizing that it has been neglected, and many people don't see how it is relevant for their life. In other words, the question has been raised, if we eliminated the Father from the Trinity and the Spirit from the Trinity, would it make any difference as long as you had Jesus? Well, this raises questions about the importance and the relevance of the Trinity for our lives, both for prayer and for worship and for faith. Well, I think the way Luther handles it is he reappropriates a teaching on the Trinity that scholars have come to call the, um, well, lack of a better word, the economic Trinity. There uh, must be a better word. Well, I wish there was. If you have one, let me know. <laughs> uh, I know it raises um, thoughts of economics and the like, but it's really not. It recognizes that in Christian thought, there are two ways of talking about the Trinity, two different ways of approaching it. To speak of an economic Trinity, it comes, borrows from the word in Acts, or economia, which refers to the arrangement of the household, how the 
how short is managed, how it's structured. And so this has come to be a term used to describe how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to each other, particularly in our lives and within history. So discussion begins by recognizing, well, Jesus appeared on the scene in the Gospels and then said, oh, by the way, remember Yahweh of the Old Testament? Well, he's my Father, and together we'll send you the Holy Spirit. So it begins with a discussion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and only after talking about how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, are involved in human history through creation, through salvation, uh, through the new creation, then it arrives at a discussion of how do they relate to one another. Generally, the Father would be identified as God. Think of like John 3.16, for God so loved the world he sent his only son. You know, God there refers to Father. And generally, the Father would be seen as the source and the I suppose the source and the uh, uh, culmination of the Trinity. Now, what I mean by that is, in the early church, they had this expression, a patri ad patrum, that is to say, all things proceed from the Father and all things return to the Father. You take a simple passage like Galatians 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Why? That we might be adopted as sons. So God sends forth his son to make us sons of the Father. And then God sends forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So there is a movement whereby the Father sends the Son, and the Son brings us to the Father. And when you look at all the verbs, it is always the Son reconciles us to the Father. The Son brings mm -hmm. us to the Father. Or the Father puts all things into the hands of the Son, and the Son returns them to the Father. Or similarly, you have language like the spirit of the Son. The spirit, in a sense, comes from the Father and the Son and brings us back. So there's this movement from the Father to the Son to the Spirit. The Spirit brings us to the Son, and he brings us to the Father. Mm -hmm. In many respects, that movement of God within our history mirrors our faith life and prayer life. Ordinarily, when we pray, and I suspect most prayers of the Christian church reflect this, we pray to the Father in Jesus' name, or for Jesus' sake, in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, to be sure, we have prayers addressed to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, uh, partly to affirm that they too are God, but there is this movement whereby the Father sends the Son and the Spirit, the Spirit brings us to the Son who brings us to the Father. Well, I'm convinced that Luther has picked up this biblical way of talking in the Catechism. So he begins with the Father in creation, the Son and redemption, and the Spirit in sanctification. And that's why I mentioned in the last segment that at the end of the large catechism, he in fact talks in this way. That the Father has shown or opened up the, um, and shown us uh, the unfathomable depths of his heart by giving us all of creation, and in addition to that, his Son in all of his works, and the Spirit in all of his gifts. And the Spirit brings us to Christ, who is a mirror of the Father's heart. So that's, I think, how he would handle the Trinity, at least in the Catechism. And um, that's why I think he puts it after the third article in the large Catechism. 
we don't often hear it explained in that way. Is, is Luther's view unique? Well, in some ways it may appear to be, but I think what he has done is, is he has reclaimed a way of talking that sometimes is overlooked. And it is the primary way of talking about the Trinity, both in the New Testament and, I think, in the early church. What I think has happened in the Western church is, especially since the time of Augustine, we have become accustomed to thinking about the Trinity in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is sometimes known as the, get ready, the imminent Trinity. <laughs> uh, what does that mean? Well, imminent simply has to do with uh, God in himself. What this has to do is it's a way of talking about God that really has no connection to us. So, for example, when we talk about how the Father is unbegotten, or the Son is begotten of the Father, or the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, those verbs have nothing to do with us. All they do is they describe how the Father, Son, and Spirit relate to each other in eternity. I've always wondered about that because... um when John records our Lord's words about the proceeding of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's proceeding to us. But in the Creed, we don't mean that at all. We're using biblical language there to talk about something that that the Bible doesn't discuss, really. Yes. And so when you use language like begotten and proceeding, begotten from John 3.16, proceeding from uh, later on in John, um, it's simply a way of distinguishing the Son from the Spirit. Um, especially from eternity. We have no idea what those words mean, but somehow, in some way, they distinguish the Son from the Spirit as well as from the Father. And I think when people think about the Trinity, they primarily think of that, with the result that it's hard to see what relevance the doctrine of the Trinity has in our lives. Um, And to be sure, that's the way the Athanasian Creed talks. Now, I think it's important because, yeah, it's important in one sense because it's a way of affirming the complete equality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. There's always a danger with the economic way of talking, of Father sends the Son, but somehow the Son is less than the Father. Yeah. Um, Even though that's a biblical way of talking. But when we talk about three persons in one essence, one essence in three persons, um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, it's a way of saying they're all equally God, even though they're distinguished from one another. And there is only one God then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the way I look at this is to say that the economic way of talking is the language of everyday life. It's the language of the Bible, the language of prayer, the language of worship, the language of evangelism. But as we talk that way, we always have to keep in the back of our heads the language of the imminent trinity, which affirms that all three are one God, equally God, but only one God, and yet are distinct, so that we don't fall into the error of Arianism or subordinationism, whereby we think of Jesus or the Spirit as somehow less divine Mm -hmm. uh, than the Father. So one way of thinking about this is, Um, I'm going to borrow from uh, my wife's work. She's an x-ray technologist, and so she takes pictures of bones a lot. Um, The economic way of talking is sort of like me talking about my bones. When I broke my leg 12 years ago or so, I spoke about my thigh bone, my knee bone, and my shin bone. Mm -hmm. 
Well, in the medical field, they want to talk about your tibia, your patella, your uh, fibula. Uh, there's more precision there. And if they're going to operate, you want them to be very precise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the former is how I think Luther talks in the catechism. The latter is more how the Athanasian Creed talks. Both are necessary, but they have different roles with respect to each other. And so that means that while we indeed need to hang on to the language of the imminent trinity, we need to talk about how God is three persons in in one essence. In fact, when we're delivering the biblical message, as you said, for instance, to unbelievers, we need to talk about what God's done for us and what he's done for us lately. And so we need to turn to the language of the economic trinity. Exactly. And so for the catechism or for catechesis, I think that's the uh, first language you learn. And then as one grows in the faith and grows in um, the uh, knowledge of the scriptures and in wisdom, one can move on and also talk about the imminent trinity. And, and talking about the trinity in either way reminds us that God is, after all, a God of community within himself, but then also a God of community with us. Very much so, and I think that's picked up with the, the Spirit bringing us to Christ, and Christ bringing us to the Father, so that there's not only this community of the Trinity, but we are in community with the Trinity as well. And this community of God, the Creator, the Redeemer, the Sanctifier, with, with his human creatures, shows that God, who probably converses within himself and certainly communes within himself in the three persons, also communes with us in conversation. We've heard a lot about his word for us in looking at the creed, and in our next discussion we want to turn to our talking with him, his gift of prayer to us.